This week's Data Nuts podcast is sponsored in part by Interop ITX, the only independent conference for technology leaders. Get a year's worth of objective IT education in one week. Visit interopitx.com and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS for a 20% discount. Captain, we're dropping out of warp. Why? What's happening, Ensign? It's too much for the ship. For the crew. We're running out of energy, sir. But, Captain, there's a reading up ahead. Something we've not seen before. On screen. Look, sir. Clouds. So many of them. And they all have fantastic energy readings. If we go into those clouds, we should be able to harness their energy and go back to warp. Yes. Yes, Ensign. You're absolutely correct. Welcome to the Data Knots Podcast. Today, a look at some public clouds. Are they all the same? Is it just a matter of pricing? Or is there more to the decision than that? At PacketPushers.net, you can find this and all of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Data Knots, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Data Knots underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the red-bearded Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who will arrive at the gates of Valhalla shiny and chrome. Joining us today is a repeat Data Knots offender, Eric Shanks. Eric, welcome to the Data Knots, and tell the nice people listening something about yourself. Hey, everybody. I'm glad to be back with you guys. I'm a senior solutions architect for AHEAD, and one of my hobbies is grilling. Hopefully, Chris Wall will be able to attest to my grilling prowess. Pretty good. Grilling prowess? Wow. If you were in Gartner's Magic Quadrant, where would you be? I would be in the upper right-hand corner. For grilling. For sure. Of course. Of course. In grilling. Will. Yes. In fact, there's not a Magic Quadrant for that, but there should be. We'll see what we can do. What I wanted to do in today's show, guys, is uh, have a discussion about public cloud. Which cloud do you choose? How do you make the decisions? What are the decision points about cloud? Because there's so many different public clouds now. AWS, of course, is right at the top of the list. Azure continues to be competitive, add new features. And if you follow their blog, it's just a monster storm every week of, uh, we did this and we did that and you can do this now and, and so on as they chase down AWS and, of course, Google Cloud is becoming more popular, and the pricing seems strong there, but uh, the features may be not quite so mature. And then there's all these other competing cloud offerings. And so there's some questions about choice. How do you choose? What are the distinctives between these cloud offerings? Eric, you and I were talking offline and, and kicking around some ideas, and I said, do you shop for a public cloud looking at AWS has got these features, and maybe Azure's got these other features, and then you kind of weigh it all in the balance and then go, okay, I'm going to go you know, one direction or the other because of those features. And you basically told me I was wrong, <laughs> that customers aren't making the decisions based on those sorts of decision points. Yeah. From what I've seen, those aren't really the decisions people are making. I mean, there's sort of a bake-off that happens, and it's typically usually between AWS and Azure, but they're not comparing feature for feature between the two different public cloud offerings. It's more about how else they're going to get into the public cloud. So if it's a traditional Microsoft shop and they're looking to move their stuff to the public cloud, Azure a lot of times seems more impressive to them, especially because they've probably got some sort of Microsoft ELA. So they'll get a certain number of credits with Azure. So it's kind of that we'll give you a, the first piece of candies for free and then you got to pay for the rest of them kind of thing. So Microsoft gets a, a lot of business that way. Also, if somebody's already on Office 365, things like Azure AD and things make it more compelling for those customers because they're already using some of the services. If the customer's brand new to cloud or they're more of a Linux shop, typically we see Amazon most of the time. 
Azure is usually brought up in the conversation if the customer says, you know, we don't want to be pinned down to a specific vendor or something like that. They'll look at maybe more than one vendor at a time. But generally, the conversations between which public cloud vendor they're going to go to isn't a, which EC2 instance is the biggest or which Azure VM has the, the largest size or the fastest speeds or things like that. Really, it's kind of a gut feeling on which one of those two public <laughs> cloud offerings is the right one for the customer. So you come in and you're like, I'm the consultant, kind of lick your finger, put it up in the air, like, feels like an Azure cloud, done. <laughs> to a certain extent, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maybe the, the, this argument of either or is a false dichotomy, though, because it does seem like folks aren't going necessarily with just one cloud. You know, the, the story we keep hearing is multi-cloud and a lot of the software packages that have been coming out now for cloud management is you can move your workload from private infrastructure up into whatever public cloud you want to use because, of course, you're using many of them. Is that something you're seeing with the head customers, Eric? Yeah, so we'll see those conversations come up a lot, and that's where actually the consulting comes into play. It's not necessarily about which public cloud vendor to choose. It's about how you're going to build your public cloud. And portability between public clouds is a conversation that happens a lot, but it's not about moving a live workload from one cloud to the other cloud. Most of the conversations we have are about rebuilding your application so that they work with a, with a cloud vendor more natively in, in your automation and orchestration process. So if you can build a machine really quickly to AWS, if you can also tear it down and rebuild it again really quickly in Microsoft Azure, that's sort of the same thing as moving them from one to the other, right? So those are the conversations that we have about multi-cloud. I wouldn't say that it's all about the tools that are involved in that. It's more about the process that needs to be built. What would trigger somebody in these conversations to actually say, okay, I'm going to move from one of these public environments to a different one? Is it just all about price or they just have this vendor lock-in kind of phobia? Yeah, it's basically phobia at this point. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't seen any of our customers at this point start with one public cloud vendor and then go, oh no, we're moving and move everything to a different public cloud vendor. I, I've yet to see that. Maybe it's just because the public cloud methodologies aren't that mature yet. Like the customers haven't really adopted one fully yet, so they haven't had to move anything. Really, this comes down to that phobia that's happening where customers don't want to be locked into one vendor or, or the other. And I get that. Amazon could change their pricing once all of your workloads are moved up to the Amazon public cloud. And maybe you'd want to be able to go, well, we're not locked into you. We can move to Azure. So we're using some other tool to abstract that. So the automation process is going through something else. But then really what you're doing is you're moving your vendor lock into someplace else as well, right? If you decided that you're going to use VMware vRealize Automation or RightScale or ServiceNow or something to manage all of your automation tasks and, and deploy your workloads to different public clouds, well, you're kind of locked into that tool now. And moving off of that's going to be a pain. So you're just kind of moving that around. Don't you think that being in one provider, you know, like, like if you put all your public cloud workloads at AWS, don't you think that that's... A risk. You know, my logic is if I've got all of that work up there, Amazon's got a problem that could potentially affect me everywhere. Now, I understand, okay, I would put workloads in geographically dispersed areas. I would zone them properly and try to minimize that risk. But still, it feels to me like, ah, I don't necessarily want to put everything into Amazon, not just for the lock-in, but also just for the, the risk factor. If I've got some of my product in Amazon and some in Azure, in theory, I've, I've mitigated one provider having a problem from affecting everything that could be customer-facing services or critical internal business processes. It's kind of like building an internet service provider edge when 
you do that, you choose multiple service providers to bring them in. And the theory that you know, if one's having a problem, the other one isn't, and vice versa. And you can uh, you've got business continuity that way. Yeah, there's a certain amount of respect to that that needs to be applied. You know, it depends on how critical your workloads are. If you're a, a large company and any amount of downtime is going to cost you millions of dollars, which we have, it makes sense to spread those across multiple cloud vendors, possibly. But for the most part, architecting your applications to make sure that they're using additional availability zones or different regions and making sure that your replication traffic is handled within a single public cloud vendor allows you to take advantage of all the tools of that public cloud vendor, right? So, for instance, if you decided that you're going to move to Amazon and you're going to use an RDS database, so this is a, a service provided by Amazon Web Services, you can't get exactly the same thing in Microsoft Azure. So portability of your application suffers at that point, right? Eric, I want to catch you right there and follow up on something you, you just said. It, it sounds like where you're, you're taking me is spreading workloads across multiple public clouds isn't necessarily as, as critical or as key as I'm making it sound in that if you design your application correctly and disperse that application across multiple regions and availability zones, et cetera, you're not really risking much in that Amazon may have a problem, but it's going to be isolated to a region or to a zone. And therefore, your workloads that are in those other places are going to be fine, kind of like you would architect your own applications in your own privately hosted data center, more of that kind of a mindset. And so spreading across multiple public clouds isn't really a decision point for most people. Is that fair? Yeah. So it's kind of about reducing your amount of risk. And if you're deploying all of your workloads in Amazon and you make sure that you're using a, you know multiple availability zones to make sure that your applications across different data centers within the same region, and then you're adding an additional region to that so that if you have a major outage on the East Coast, the West Coast is still fine, you've reduced your risk a little bit further. If you get to the point where you're doing all of these things correctly, and the next step is, well, we can reduce risk a little more by adding the same features in Microsoft Azure, and we'll spread it across multiple public cloud vendors. You've reduced your risk even a little bit more, but at some point there's a price cost to that as well, right? So as we're reducing our risk to the application, we're also increasing the costs. So you have to kind of weigh that together. My philosophy on it, though, is if you're using all of one public cloud vendor, you're going to get to take advantage of all of their features. It would kind of be like, you know, in the what I'm going to call legacy at this point, data centers where we're using VMware. We just started using virtualization of VMware and said, you know what? We want to put this across a different hypervisor because while vMotion is cool, we want to make sure that we can reduce our risk. And vMotion was a big thing, and you want to take advantage of that. And the public cloud vendors are producing their own capabilities now that you want to take advantage of those as well. well what about the idea of building these newer applications that don't even need that sort of stuff, like microservices or serverless type functions that can be um, actually abstracted all the way down, like they're just functions as a service across vendors. I mean, then you're just, you don't even really know that you're on Azure, AWS, or something like that. You're just literally borrowing some compute time and running some things, and the application's ignorant to the entire underlay. Is that something people are just like, that would be cool, or they're actually doing it, or I'm completely off base? No, some of our customers are actually doing that. I would say we're scratching the surface with that at this point, though. Most customers are still trying to figure out, how do we take our traditional data center and start leveraging public cloud and getting some of the benefits out of that. That's kind of where we see most people <laughs> right now. Now, if you're a startup, that might be different, right? If you're starting a brand new business from scratch, you can start in the public cloud and you could start off with a serverless architecture, right? And you could be using AWS Lambda to do all your code writing. You wouldn't have to have instances, period, 
but that's not really what we've seen so far yet. Where are we at on the hype cycle with public cloud? So last year, look at 2016, a lot of the news in the media was floor space for data centers and the enterprises are going down because they're moving everything to public cloud and public cloud is the only data center sector that's really growing and it's just going to die in the enterprises. They keep moving stuff up. Then you hear on the flip side, people moving stuff back and it's like, oh, wow, that was really way more expensive than we anticipated. And there's a lot of you know, issues there. In the hype cycle, as you talk to customers, is it still like, yeah, we got to move to public cloud because roar, it's cool. Is it a more nuanced decision where, you know, for these business reasons, we want to move to cloud? And so some of the romanticization of public cloud is going away. I think there still is that roar that people are trying to just, we have to get every, we have to get into the public cloud. And when a head's brought in for consulting, a lot of the times it's about tempering that enthusiasm a little bit and making sure that it's done the right way. So instead of just being like, well, we're going to take all of our infrastructure and we're going to move it in the public cloud and we're going to see all the savings, that's not really accurate usually. You can't just pick stuff up and place it in the public cloud and all of a sudden earn money out of it. What? I thought that's how it worked, man. Nope, Bitcoin mining. No, it isn't. It's not true. So what it comes down to is refactoring your applications and making sure that they work natively with the public cloud. You know, if you've got dev test workloads that are sitting in your data center, chewing up storage space and compute resources and things, you push that out to the public cloud and you can power them on and power them off at the end of your workday, you can see some savings there. So if you do that, you can take some of that money that you've been saving and start working on refactoring some of your more traditional monolithic applications and refactor those so that they can work also in a microservices architecture and you can, you know, spin up and spin down those as you need. Yeah, something I took away is that lock-in exists at any or really all layers, right? You can't solve lock-in. Stop trying. You'll put a lot of logic into an orchestration tool to avoid cloud lock-in, and now you've got orchestration tool lock-in. So just focus on the value, figure out where lock-in is actually threatening and would prevent you from adding value. Other than that, just keep calm and move on. Yeah, the thing that stuck out to me was that I think we're mostly, but not quite, done in the industry as public cloud consumers with this big idea of, I'm going to move to public cloud and we're going to see all the savings. It's going to rain money and you're going to have like you know, freedom in your budget and stuff to do other things. Now, this is not the case at all at this point. And folks that are exploring public cloud should understand that. It just it doesn't work that way that going to public cloud is a money saver. It's a way more complex and nuanced decision to move to public cloud. As we pause the Datanauts infrastructure rocket for just a moment, let's talk about the conference the Packet Pushers are going to be at in May 2017, Interop ITX, and they are a sponsor of today's show. Interop ITX is where tech pros go to get objective, full-stack IT education, and it takes place May 15th through 19th at the MGM in Las Vegas. You can join me, Ethan Banks, along with Greg Farrow and Drew Conry-Murray of the Packet Pushers, where we will be putting on the Future of Networking Summit, and that is a two-day session where we're going to take a deep dive into next-generation developments in the WAN, data center networking, network operations, software-defined security – all the things that we think are emerging over the next one, five, and ten years. Register for Interop ITX and attend other hands-on workshops like the Future of Data, Container Crash Course, Dark Readings Cybersecurity Summit, and the Open Source IT Summit. The events conference tracks focus on security, DevOps, cloud, infrastructure, data, and analytics, all the technologies you need for a successful full-stack IT strategy. If you're looking to accelerate your career, there's also plenty of sessions on leadership and professional development. 
Plus, check out over 100 vendors at Interop ITX's business hall, where you'll have the opportunity to check out what leading and emerging tech vendors have to offer. Join us at Interop ITX this coming May and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS when you register, and you'll receive a 20% discount. We want to see you in Vegas, so go on up to interopitx.com and reserve your spot today. I think we have a bit of a better grasp on it. It's really not about pick one or the other, but potentially use both or people are planning for both. What about big decision drivers beyond that? You know, such as we kind of joked around the grilling magic quadrant, but in the reality of the public cloud magic quadrant, AWS is the market leader. But is that just perception from like an analyst view or is that the reality on your customer base too? No, I think that's uh, that's kind of a reality from what at least from what I'm seeing. You know, unless they're unless one of our customers is a Microsoft shop that's got an ELA, they typically are looking at Amazon first and then they'll look at Azure second. And up to this point, I haven't seen many of our customers looking at, at Google's cloud platform yet. If you look at like strictly revenue numbers, AWS I think did like 11 billion last year, and I think Microsoft was at like three or something. So if those numbers are accurate, you know, and, you know, I don't know how much of Azure's revenue numbers include Office 365 because a lot of people use Office 365. If those numbers are accurate, then the market is saying AWS is the leader. It's the only time $3 billion sounds minuscule. Like, oh, only $3 billion? But I'm also thinking at the same time, kind of going back to the previous discussion we had, it sounds like then nobody's really choosing one. Like, yeah, AWS may be the market leader, but you've probably got bits and pieces, not only in Azure, but all these other little places for SaaS and even these kind of like Office 365 is kind of SaaS if you look at it that way. Yeah, I'm wondering if you've got a lot of big players too, Chris, that are in AWS. They just, they built their infrastructure from the ground up and their business has grown enormously. And so now they've just got that much more compute and storage, et cetera, that they're chewing up within the Amazon cloud. And so they've got big bills. So it may not be, it's $11 billion worth of volume. And it would be curious to be able to distinguish between the amount of compute volume, if you will, that's coming out of that cloud versus the number of individual customer accounts that each cloud has. Yeah, it's kind of like the startups, they had the choice and like, yeah, of course, we're going to go to AWS. Why would we ever build our own stuff? No one likes those operational infrastructure engineers. And so they built out large services that grew and grew and grew. But we're kind of focusing more on the enterprise that had no choice. They got their brick and mortar data center. And how are they approaching the cloud? So I think that's a good point to bring up. Yeah. And for the most part, the enterprise customers we have are, are looking at more than one cloud. And that's because they've got Microsoft ELAs and they're looking for best of breed. I have my opinion. And I think that one cloud is better than the other. But, you know, for our customers, they're going to have to weigh, you know, what relationships they already have, what features they're looking for in any of the other public cloud vendors. And sometimes they'll come up with both. And they'll be using both of them for different reasons. Now, you mentioned Microsoft ELA. So if I am a Microsoft customer, I've, that's that's enterprise license agreement, right, ELA? Yep, sure is. Okay, okay. If I'm that enterprise license agreement customer, we, we were talking offline, you mentioned that that might drive some people to Azure. Well, what are the benefits there that uh, that the ELA brings me that makes Azure attractive? So as I understand it, and I don't actually get to see the ELAs very much with our customers, but as I understand it, they get a certain amount of Azure credits from Microsoft every year as part of their ELA. So really, if they're not moving workloads to Microsoft Azure, they're losing those credits and they're kind of wasting money, right? So a CIO really has a, an obligation to start moving some workloads there and take advantage of those credits so he can save money, whereas maybe they would want to use a different public cloud vendor. He's got free money sitting at Microsoft. He's got to use it. 
it's that much, that significant of a credit that you'd have to actually justify not using them? There's that much money on the table? It obviously depends on how big the customer is and how much Microsoft licensing they have. But in some cases, yes, it could be pretty substantial. Wow. Yeah, I can okay. echo that. I've seen some places where it's like, here's $250,000 just to try a particular service or their credits, you know, kind of like tokens in the old Aladdin's Castle video arcade. And it's just literally this pile that has a clock ticking on top of it. And the most common number that I saw was like 250K or 500K, you know, just short of a million. That's a decent amount of coin, especially a look at the price for some of these services, just to play with it. That's literally going to go away. It really means a big commitment on Microsoft here because you got to think about the play from their perspective. They're going to give away Azure Compute Cycles. How are they going to do it? This is a little more than the first one's free, I think. That's a stronger taste if you're getting into six and, and in rare cases, maybe even a seven-figure spend that they're, quote-unquote, giving away to a Microsoft ELA customer. They know that that customer is committed to them. And they really want them to begin leveraging the Azure cloud more. So there must be quite the profit built in uh, to Azure. And they're, they're working hard to, to get people to consume that resource. Yeah, but I, I think you got to look at a little more macro level. Their field team is incentivized. There, there's good comp for selling the public cloud space and Azure. But it's not just that one customer, right? If I can offer this one guy quarter mil, half mil, whatever it is, 100K, that doesn't live in isolation, right? They're going to talk to people. They're going to talk about what they're doing. You know, it builds an ecosystem. They're potentially going to write about it, contribute, be a reference customer. I mean, this whole long tail where bringing someone in has a multiplier effect at the macro scale. So yeah, they may spend a decent amount of coin on someone individually. In the grand scheme of things, it may not be that big. The ELA may be millions and millions, and this is just a taste. But if you can get them in... I feel like then it has that kind of trickle effect. But it's it, right. The way you describe it there, it's a land and expand strategy. We want people in the public cloud. We're, we're going to land them by pulling them in with with a pretty big coupon in uh, in their agreement. <laughs> and then, as you say, expand with word of mouth and good experience and, hey, this doesn't suck and we figured this out. Hmm, I wonder what else we can move in there that would make sense to do. Eric, I want to kick back to you. You mentioned that pricing doesn't seem to factor into decision points on public cloud too much. It's got to matter some, right? Because if you go up to AWS or to Azure, they have pricing calculators right there that are a Google search away and that can get very detailed. You're going to run this many instances and so on and so on and so on. And it can take you through this complex calculation to get to a an estimated bottom line number of what you're actually going to spend. So you know, somebody must care about pricing with tools like that. Yeah, they do. The Microsoft ELA is really the biggest one around pricing that's going to make a difference to a, an enterprise customer. But they have those complex pricing calculators on their, all, everybody's websites because they're pretty complex the way they figure out how much things are going to cost you. If you asked me point blank which service is the cheapest, I couldn't tell you because, you know, services change. Like an EC2 instance in AWS in one region might be different than what it is in another region. The prices change really fast. They're always trying to compete with each other. And you've got to try and figure out which one is is which. But as far as... Which pricing is the cheapest? That's a, a pretty decent question that at any given time could change. And I think may also be impacted by your inherent desire as an engineer to over-engineer things. It says I only need a micro instance. I really think I need something bigger. More memory is always better, which, of course, would factor into your price as well if you're not optimizing your choices for what your workloads actually need. Right, exactly. I think one of the other things about pricing specifically is is just how the different public cloud vendors handle their pricing. Not necessarily of what the prices are, 
but how you can reduce your pricing. So, you know, AWS uses reserved instances. So you can buy one of those ahead of time and it'll say, well, it's going to be cheaper than if you ran this instance just on demand. Microsoft has an ELA, so you can drop your prices that way. And Google, actually, I like Google's the best just because they do sustained use discounts or SUDs. From that, just the more you use an instance, the more discount you'd get on it by the end of the month. So you don't even have to think about it. It just kind of gives you those breaks as you go, which is really nice. Yeah, I heard rumors that uh, Google Cloud is the cheapest if we're looking at them as the big three, AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. I don't have any you know hard data to support that other than you know, that's something that's popped up a few times in some of the reading and research I've done. And I'm wondering if that's going to become a, a driver to make Google Cloud more interesting to the enterprise customer. Now, you said people just aren't interested in it or haven't – I mean, is it because they haven't heard about it or – you begin to look at what the offering is and go, eh, it kind of sucks compared to AWS and Azure right now. Yeah, I mean, I think Google's playing catch up at this point a little bit. But if I'm a CIO or something from a large company, the first thing I probably have seen is the magic quadrant, right? So I know AWS is probably the market leader. I have to look at them. And behind that is Azure because they're right behind AWS at this point. And you've probably got some ELA credits. After that, it's kind of who else is around? And that's kind of when you get into into Google. And I think Google does have some some interesting pricing. They can be cheaper for some of your instances, but AWS and Azure are focused at this point. They've got SSDs on pretty much all their instances. Google doesn't have an SSD unless you pay extra for it. And when you pay extra for an SSD, you have to buy a 375 gig SSD, I think, and it's local. So it's not even persistent data. So you'd have to have a specific use case for it and be able to rebuild your instances. So at this point, I think Google's still playing catch up. You mentioned once they look at AWS and Azure, like really what's left, and you you cite Google Cloud, but what about like vCloud Air or Rackspace or HP as clouds? Like, are they just so tiny? You're like, eh. Or even, I'll add on to that question, Eric, is private cloud uh, a consideration where they're like, well, we need to convert, you know, our operations and the way we roll apps out. And and so we're looking at public cloud, but Eric, Mr. Ahead Consultant, would it make sense for us to go private cloud instead? Yeah, so we still see private cloud a decent amount, and it, whether it's a regulatory reason or just people aren't comfortable with the cloud or they think that their workloads will be on all the time and the public cloud won't really save them any money, private cloud is still something we see quite a bit. Uh, as far as the other cloud vendors, you know, I don't see too much of HP unless the shop we go into is an HP shop. We see a little bit of Oracle, but again, it's, it's the same thing. If we go into a shop and it's an Oracle shop, they'll look at it just because they've got a vendor relationship there and they're familiar with the tools and things. Otherwise, it's pretty much AWS or Azure. The takeaway I've got here really builds on my takeaway from part one, and it's this. Public cloud is about customizing a solution to your specific business needs within a bunch of constraints, right? So in other words, nothing's changed. Public cloud is still a very hard technology decision that requires as much research as any other. You've got to dig in, look at your apps, look at your budget, look at performance requirements, look at specific features you want to take advantage of, look at the tooling you're going to use to maybe automate your public cloud, etc. And all of that brought together brings you to a place where you can make an intelligent public cloud decision. It's a hard thing. It's really genuinely a hard thing that's going to take a lot of work to make the best decision. What was your takeaway, Chris? Preach it, brother. 
kind of on that same vein. It, it doesn't hurt to consume the credits and to test the waters because you have credits offered by a public cloud provider, but don't let that be the one decision criteria. Like, oh, we got credits with this vendor, so we have to use them. Certainly, I think there's ways that you can use those credits, like consume it for storage, for putting your backups in there, or something like that. But don't make it like the vendors kind of made the decision for me, because ultimately you just have to quote unquote think cloudy with your applications, uh, and that should be the driver. One of the things we talked about earlier in the show was the problem of lock-in getting getting tied into the cloud. Now, one of the points you made, Eric, is people don't really think about, oh, I need to be able to have my workload move from this cloud to this other cloud because it's not you know that way. And so maybe in that sense, lock-in isn't a huge thing. But there is a point worth making that the things that you can do within Amazon are peculiar to Amazon. You know, the API calls are unique and a lot of the features there are unique, in, at least in the way they work. And then you compare that to Azure and there may be feature parity in some things, but it might work differently. And so there's lock-in in that way. I mean, is there a concern when designing these solutions that people are just not going to be able to get that workload out of the cloud very easily? And you know, what sort of behavior does that drive? Yeah, to a certain extent it does. So this kind of comes down to the conversation on whether or not you're going to have something front-end your public cloud to do your provisioning, right? So you can use AWS and their API, or you can use Microsoft Azure's API with PowerShell to deploy your workloads, and you could write up your own scripts, and, and you could throw them in Jenkins or something for a CICD tool pipeline, and you could deploy all these things just fine. But at the same time, do I need to then manage two different public clouds? Do I have to have two different sets of skill sets you know, on my team? Do I need a guy that knows PowerShell and a guy that knows Python? Or how am I going to handle this? And if I'm going to front this with a cloud management platform like VRA or RightScale or something like that, you can abstract a lot of that, right? We can go through a single deployment method, but we'll still have to talk to the APIs of these different public cloud vendors. You can also build it directly on the cloud itself. And if you're going to do that, it makes that workload very sticky, right? So it has to stay in one of those public cloud vendors because the same provisioning process won't work with the others. So these are the conversations that you have to have before you start going into the public cloud about, okay, how do we want to architect this and how do we want our orchestration to work so that we can deploy to one cloud? And if we need to, we can destroy it and rebuild it in another cloud. A virtual machine is a virtual machine, whether you call it an EC2 instance or an Azure VM it's a virtual machine. I can build one and destroy it and build it someplace else. But if I'm going to put that in a managed service, like AWS has Elastic Beanstalk, which is basically a web server that you don't have to worry about the underlying operating system stuff, you'd have to find something that's similar in Microsoft Azure, but you're going to deploy it in a completely different manner. Well, speaking of stickiness, you know, yeah, you can blow away a virtual machine, and a lot of this seems like ephemeral kind of provisioning type decisions. But what about storage, right? You know, storage accumulates, data gravity is a real issue, I'll say it's a challenge in which, you know, the speed of light and latency and things like that makes it so that you typically want the compute as close as possible to where the data is so that the decisions can be made in kind of real time. Uh, how does that influence the stickiness of certain cloud decisions? Yeah, so wherever you're going to store your data is going to be a big part of this, right? I don't want to put my web servers in Microsoft Azure and store my data in a database in RDS and AWS. For one thing, you'll have some security challenges there because you'll have to pass traffic over the internet probably to get between the two public clouds. But yeah, you want your web servers and your data to be close together. So if you decide your data is going to go in one cloud, you've pretty much decided where your applications are going to live as well. Hmm. Yeah, 
that's <laughs> data gravity. It just it's one of those problems that it's so easy to to overlook, and it's like, yeah, but then your data's got to live somewhere, and you need to deal with that. Or and it just it, it, as soon as it occurs to you, it's like ah, the brakes kind of slam on. Like oh, okay, got to rethink this whole thing if you haven't hadn't occurred to you. Related to that, you know, another thing that can make your workload sticky is vendor superpower. So there's. We were talking about this earlier. Amazon's got all these unique and interesting features and things that you can do. And if you really just go whole hog, it's harder and harder the more features you take advantage of to get out of that Amazon world. And and it's the same thing with Azure from what I'm understanding, especially if you read their blog. Oh, my word. This is some fancy new feature, a new thing coming out every day that's uh, unique and special to them. Do you just say – Screw it. I'm an Amazon customer. I'm to everything I can do in their cloud. I'm doing it because that's why I'm here. I'm going to take advantage of all these things. Or do you go conservative and say, yeah, you know, I'm going to hold back on some of that stuff because I'd like a little more flexibility for when I want things to change at some point in the future. Yeah, and this is one of the things I can't answer directly. I can't just give you a straight answer on this. It kind of comes down to every person's got their own feelings about this. And these will be the conversations we have up front as part of a strategy to decide how you're going to go to a public cloud. Some customers will say, yes, we're just going to pick AWS and we're going to go straight there and we're going to use all their services and it's going to be great. And if we have to, if something happens to Amazon, we're going to figure out a different way to to make this work and there'll be that pain at a later date. And I think to a certain extent, that's kind of one of the reasons why AWS and Microsoft are two of the market leaders here because customers don't feel like they're going to go out of business anytime soon, right? At some point, a smaller public cloud vendor may go out of business because they're just like, you know what, it's too hard to compete with AWS and Microsoft at this point. We're not going to do it anymore. And that would be a reason people wouldn't go whole hog with, you know, another cloud that's not in the top of the magic quadrant. Now, what about licensing? You mentioned earlier Oracle, and I cringe just because anytime I hear that word, I also think license audit. But what about that at scale? I'm thinking, man, auditing and tracking and controlling operating system licenses, applications, any kind of capacity and usage licensing must be a challenge. And then you add in any licenses or subscriptions you might be paying for the cloud. What is the mindset around that? And how do you control, track, audit, all that kind of jazz at scale through public cloud? Licensing is for sure a challenge. And most of the public cloud vendors have ways that you can order up instances and the licensing is included, right? So you're paying a percentage of your licensing ahead of time as you use an instance. If you request a Microsoft virtual machine from AWS, you can pay for it in such a way that it pays for your license as, you're, as you go along. You can also bring your own licensing for many services, but not everything either. So if you've got a specific application that requires its own licensing, if there's not an instance already available from the public cloud vendor, you can bring those along. But tracking them does become tricky. Typically, if you've got a license for a machine, it's a workload still that is meant to stay on all the time. So it's a little bit just like how you would manage your licensing on-prem. So if I've got a bunch of machines and I have to track their licensing on-prem, I've got some sort of tool that's going out and making sure that I can report on what licensing I have. That wouldn't really change for public cloud because that license probably has to be on all the time anyway. But if you've got ephemeral workloads, that becomes iffy and you'd have to work this out with your own vendor to determine how that licensing is supposed to work. Some vendors at this point have said, well, if you pay for licenses in the public cloud, we're going to charge you X amount differently than how you use the same license on-prem. What? Yeah. So... You mean like good differently or bad differently? Like it's less, cheaper? Depends. Or... <laughs> so you you could assume that some 
vendors have their own public cloud, and if you use their cloud, the licensing gets much easier on you. Yeah, I think and I see where you're going with that. Yeah. If you use somebody else's cloud, it's more expensive. So these things can happen. Uh, well, what about license mobility then? If I wanted to move from one cloud to another and I've got something that's licensed, is that doable or do they make that hard uh, to move my license from one cloud to another? Well, of course, anything with licensing is hard. So, of course, it's hard. But moving them from one cloud to another, a lot of times, at least with the customers I work with, it would be, you know, a true up at the end of the year. So it wouldn't be like, as I'm moving the workload, I have to go get a license swapped over or something like that. And if you buy anything out of the marketplace, I assume any licensing or subscription with that is just bundled in the price. Yeah, for the most part, unless it says otherwise. It depends there, too. (laughs) I mean, unless anything (laughs) says otherwise, then, you know, the licensing that is included as part of the instance would be covered. I think that's the hairiest part about this whole discussion so far is people tend to not think of the licensing until it's all up and running and the poor accounting and finance teams have to deal with all the mess. And it's like, we've got micro stuff splattered everywhere across all these clouds. Good luck. Hmm. We can make it worse. We can make it hybrid cloud. Let's make it worse. Oh, yeah. Let's say we've got a hybrid cloud set up. I've got my whatever my overlay orchestration tool is that's able to move workloads from my private to public cloud and back. That tool seems to be driven by the people making the tools and not by the cloud vendors. In other words, I'm not going to Amazon for my you know hybrid cloud orchestration tool because they don't really want you to leave. I guess Azure is a bit better about that. You know, making your workloads portable between uh, Azure and, and your private cloud. But is that another one of those lock-in decision points that some customers are looking at that and going, well, based on my choice of tooling and my desire to move workloads around, I'm going to pick one versus the other? Absolutely, is how I'd answer that. So this is a, a conversation that happens a lot with customers. And it's really about, are we going to use some sort of an abstraction layer, like a cloud management platform that's going to deploy our workloads for us? And if you do that, you're dependent on whoever the CMP vendor is to put all that functionality in there. And let's be honest about this. There's no way that any cloud management platform is going to be up to date with all of the public clouds and all of their capabilities at all the time, right? The public cloud changes so fast that people that actually work for the company can't keep up with all the different things that they're adding to those public clouds or changes in licensing or changes in pricing if you're writing code for a product that's supposed to you know, abstract those, you're always going to be behind. So if you use a tool that's released on a quarterly basis, that means at best you can't use any new features that were released to Amazon or, or Azure or whatever in the last three months. But generally it's even further along than that because you have to. it takes a while to code for those. So they have to be out and you have to write code for them so that they'll integrate with your platform. And any of those CMPs are going to be a little bit behind. <laughs> It's funny when you hear vendors talk about, oh, we just write to the public API. It's fine. Everything will be okay. Trust us. We're not like the others. And then the very first words out of your mouth just about are, um, yep, your cloud management tool is going to be behind just by definition because it has to be. Unless they've got some magical strategic partnership between the public provider and uh, themselves as a tool maker, which most don't. They're just consuming public APIs then, uh, yeah, they are going to be behind because they don't have any advance notice opportunity to release the new version of their tool in tandem with the new APIs that come out of the public cloud vendor. Right. And they're not going to get access to those APIs early for the most part because at some point they're a competitor, right? VMware and Microsoft Azure are not going to necessarily work together ahead of time to make sure that all their platforms work. Microsoft wants your business. VMware wants your business. And... 
in some circumstances, not going to work together to make sure that you've got a product that allow you to go to a different cloud at the same time. Well, Eric, thanks for joining us and talking about public cloud and decision making. We're kind of targeting AWS and Azure, but we brought in other stuff too, because it's It's interesting. I started out researching this and doing a bunch of reading, thinking this is going to be kind of a pricing and feature decision. And then the way people actually get around to making a public cloud decision is is a lot more nuanced than that. So this was interesting to hear what people are actually going through as they make these calls. Eric, I, I know you write and you're socially active. Let people know where they can follow you. Sure. So I write a blog called theithollow.com. You can find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Eric underscore Shanks. And I've got a course on V-Realize Automation on Pluralsight you can check out. Awesome. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at EC Banks on Twitter, and my blog is EthanCBanks.com. You can harvest Chris's digital synaptic power at Chris Wall on Twitter or via his blog, wallnetwork.com. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, separate your saucer section and glide gently through the atmosphere to packetpushers.net. Once you've landed, you'll find the Data Nuts offering information about automation, virtualization, certification, cloudification, and just general deep nerding about IT. And until then, may your server lights blink, your power be uninterrupted, and your cables be cleanly managed. what you're talking about is they're not naked <laughs> they're not <laughs> <laughs>